0: Casting from the banks of the Mekong River in Luang Prabang, this is Radio Ok Pop Talk, the podcast that crisscrosses the globe meeting pioneers in the world of folk art, change makers in travel and tourism, and innovators in remote communities. Join us as we delve into the minds of these custodians of culture.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Opop ok Pop Talk, an artisan textile company founded by women, run by women, for the women of Laos. I'm Joanna Smith,
0: and I'm Rachna Sachson. If you're looking for inspiration and ideas of where to travel, you've come to the right place. All aboard! Let's go. Subaydi, everyone, welcome back to Radio Pop Talk, and today we're going to be going to Tibet. Um, You can't get any more remote than Ritoma, a tiny hamlet in the far northeastern pocket of the Tibetan Plateau. Here you'll find Norla, an atelier that makes sustainable luxury textiles from yak wool and using local techniques. Norla is an auspicious name and it speaks to the region. Nor means wealth and it's also the word used for yaks. La means God. So Norla is the god of wealth, and by extension, the god of yaks. Norla came about unexpectedly, and it all started with Kim Yeshi. Kim is a French-American anthropologist. After obtaining her master's in Tibetan studies from the University of Virginia, she had an idea to do a project in Tibet, and she always wanted to do something with yak fiber. It was 2004. And Kim's daughter, Deshin, an aspiring filmmaker, had just graduated from college in the United States. But somehow, Kim managed to convince Deshin to do a reconnaissance trip to Tibet and find out if her idea to do something with Yak would work. What transpires here is a story filled with adventure, determination, and incredible integrity. Joe, you wanna jump in here?
1: Yes. Rachna, um, I'm really envious because you've actually been to Tibet. I've never been there and it looks incredibly beautiful. I'm really curious to hear about Detchen's first trip there and what her first impressions were. Some of the questions that strike me off the bat are, what's it like living and working in a small remote plateau community of nomadic yak herders? How did Detchen and her mum even get Nola started? And now they've created 120 jobs helping to uplift the local community. We can even find their scarves and shawls in some of the world's best known fashion houses, including Louis Vuitton, Hermes, Balmain. So for sure, this conversation's gonna be really interesting. And there's even basketball. They started a basketball team. For me, I really love when the workplace crosses over into team sports. It's such a great way to build teamwork. You really see a wonderful new side of people. So, Ratna, shall we go to Tibet?
0: Yes, absolutely. But first, let's welcome Kim and Deshin to the show. Welcome, Kim. Welcome, Deshin.
2: Lovely to meet you, Joan Ratna, And thank you so much for this opportunity to be on Radio Okpok Talk. We're looking forward to the conversation today.
0: Yeah, hi, Dechen. Um, and hi, Kim. Hi, I'm Kim. I wanted to ask you, what was the light bulb moment? You know, that that minute that you thought where it would be a good idea to sort of rush off to a remote corner of Tibet and make beautiful textiles using yak that hardly anyone has ever heard of.
3: Um, I think it was more of a buildup rather than a moment. I did a lot of um, studies of different types of precious fibers. And because the world was changing, younger people wanted things that their parents or their grandparents might not have known about or not wanted, especially. And so they, they needed to kind of jump into the market economy. They'd all been nomads where we lived. And I was very much aware of, you know, traditions that were lost but in our case there were no traditions in in that particular area with that particular fiber but it was this need to innovate and take take like different aspects of different things put them together and create um opportunities for people who needed them Um.
0: Let's first find out a little bit more about the grasslands and yaks. Sitting at an elevation of three to five thousand plus meters, the Tibetan plateau is blanketed in snow for a good part of the year. Ringed by jagged Himalayan peaks, Tibet is also home to gorgeous grasslands dotted with wildflowers, colorful prayer flags, black nomad tents, and lots and lots of yaks. For centuries, Tibetans have led a nomadic life, grazing their yaks in the high Himalayan grasslands. Yak meat and milk is the backbone of the Tibetan diet. Yak dung is also used for heating and cooking. Using rudimentary draw looms, nomadic women weave yak wool into long strips to make tents, blankets, and basic clothing. Women wake at 4 a.m. and begin the day collecting fresh yak dung. Then there is milking, making yak butter, tending the flock. Some days, just staying warm is a full-time activity. And that's not even the half of it. This is nomad living. Now, the yak is a distant cousin of the Indian buffalo and the American bison. They're docile creatures with long, shaggy fur that drags on the ground. The outer fur tends to be a little coarse, but yaks also have an extraordinary soft undercoating known as yak kullu, which can withstand extraordinarily cold temperatures. Knowing that yak wool was on par with Kashmir and Pashmina, Kim felt the fiber had potential in the modern marketplace. Tibetan nomads were and still are in transition. There is a need for jobs, money, and there are plenty of yak on the plateau. It seemed like a far-fetched idea. Just getting to Tibet requires plenty of time and determination. As Kim mentioned earlier, fine weaving is not commonplace in nomadic communities. Kim and Dechen's challenge was to introduce a weaving economy scale to village life. To do this, they first had to find out if the nomads were even interested. So Kim dispatched Detchen on a fact-finding mission. I asked Detchen to tell us about that first trip to Tibet. What was that like uh, when you went off to Amdo, fresh out of college, figure out how to make your mom's idea work?
2: There's a sense of excitement, definitely, Uh, but I was also very, I guess, scared in a way. There was a mission to be completed there, and I was very conscious, self-conscious about being Tibetan, but what if I didn't identify with the people there? What if they didn't accept me? So there was a lot of mixed feelings when we set off. I was backpacking. I was trying to make a film at the time, um, visiting different families. I traveled all over the Tibetan plateau outside of the autonomous region um, and really did a kind of a location scouting. I, I think I realized for the first time how much we romanticized Tibet growing up. Um it's just so beautiful in pictures, but when you have to actually live with nomads and you experience how they have to wake up as early as three in the morning during the summer months, the milking and just endless chores that are lined up throughout the day, um, families don't even have time during the summer months to sit together and share a meal. There was no, um, there were no holidays. I mean, rain or shine, you had to go out there. You had to worry about wolves. You had to worry about diseases. It was, it was just very raw and real. When she accepted to fund me and sponsor me to go through the plateau on my filming trip, she had also asked me to find out what people, how young people felt, and whether there were anything, any possibilities around doing something with yakulu. So. Talking to this younger generation, I realized that um, they were very interested and open uh, to any ideas around an alternative source of employment. So when I started talking about Yakulu, I realized that there wasn't much that was being done at all.
0: The Tibetan plateau is vast, and it's called the roof of the world for a reason. Tibet is the world's largest plateau above sea level. It spans 1,000 kilometers north to south from Ladakh in India to Bhutan, and 2,500 kilometers east to west from China to India. Of course, Tibet has a long and rich independent history. However, all that was upended in the 1950s. Modern Tibet is ruled by China and it is divided into three main areas. The Tibet Autonomous Region is the westernmost region, and it is home to Lhasa, Everest, Kailash, and Snow Leopards. Kam, or Eastern Tibet, is the cultural seat of Tibet. It merges with China's Sichuan province. North of Kham is Amdo, a region famous for its centuries-old monasteries and its grasslands. Step into this landscape and you'll hear yaks with bells tinkling around their necks, prayer wheels spinning, and the deep whirring sounds of the Dungchen or the Tibetan longhorn, which is used for Buddhist ceremonies. After her first reconnaissance trip to Tibet, Dechen came back to Amdo. It is here, among the small, remote, nomadic and settled communities of Amdo, that Norla began to take
2: shape. <laughs> So then that year I returned in 2005 is when we came back with a very clear mission. My younger brother was my sidekick and uh, we had these, this half a ton of yakulu we had to uh, gather. So I came back and met up with all the families I had met up with the year before and who had talked to to about these ideas. And all of a sudden it was just, it felt very anticlimactic because I arrived there and they are like, oh, you're back. Uh, wonderful. Oh, uh, can you remind us what we want to do again? And then they were busy doing this and they were busy doing that. I mean, they had their lives and they had to tend to their animals. So my brother and I felt like a little bit uh, rejected and we decided okay there was this nice town uh, next to this monastery and we stayed there and we thought okay we might as well use this time to learn the local dialect because we both speak the central tibetan dialect but we didn't speak the amdo dialect tibetan dialect so we learned the dialect and then kept persisting and going back to these families and being patient and patience was a huge lesson just even getting a shower was just such a luxury Some days we'd go by the river and just wash our feet and you start to appreciate all these little things in life Um, but there were times where we just got very frustrated Uh, my brother and i got into this massive fight over the last pair of clean socks i remember so there were days like that um the food that it was very difficult also at the time Uh, but I think that knowing that we had this mission, we needed to get it done and then calling my mom all the time daily and then having this face of being very patient uh, with the people we were working with, but then turning around and shouting and screaming at my mom for everything that was going wrong. wrong. She was really the punch bag in all of this. but we did it and uh, we returned in 2006 and then I really moved there in 2007 and since then I've been living there.
1: So interesting, I'm super fascinated by like how, how you started the project and did you have to convince um, a core number of people to like join you. I mean, with Op Pop Doc, we started out as five weavers and that was already such a, such a challenge to convince these five weavers that we had an idea that was worth joining and we weren't quite sure if it was gonna work, but if they would just trust in us and we'll trust in them that we can start something. And it was really getting the momentum to start something that was quite a a key challenge did you how did you start your project we started the
2: project simultaneously in two different areas and one area called machu it was much more vast and uh, herders had more animals they were more affluent and the other one was a small pocket of nomads Mm. within farming villages so and we realized that after uh, working with both that the smaller a pocket of nomads within the farming areas they were less spread out and also they weren't as affluent as those uh, big large nomad families with hundreds of yaks and they were more receptive to the idea of having an alternative source of employment. So eventually naturally started to distill down to working more with that that village and when we did so um, it was first finding this one middle person who would then introduce us to the village elders, then starting the conversation around how we would do the recruitment process, um, what our vision was. And a lot of the time uh, we found that it wasn't, they, they weren't so convinced when we spoke too much about Uh, too far down the road what we were trying to do. They wanted more of immediate goals, uh, one-year goals, two-year goals, and that was about as far as they wanted to go for the time being. So, And then when we started working really with the villagers, uh, we recruited our first 10 people. And it was very interesting how they helped us to choose these 10 people to start out with. Um, They proposed that we have five men and five women, and we accepted that. We worked a little bit, but finally we had out of the 10, we had eight who were from uh, nomads who no longer had any animals. So they were looking uh, for other sources of employment. A lot of them were doing construction jobs that were seasonal. And so they were, we chose eight of those two people we chose from more um, affluent families. And then from the eight, we had one girl who um, was uh, deaf and mute. And then we had two people who were quite skilled. We had another woman who was divorced. So she didn't have, uh, she was back home and didn't have anywhere else to uh, lean on. And so it was made up of a group of people. And today we still have six of the original 10. So from very early on, we realized that a lot of this had to rest on just mutual trust. They had to trust us as employers and we had to trust them as artisans and employees. And as long as we had that trust, then uh, we're able to go forward. So in order to build that trust, I realized that I had to move there, live in the village. Kim would come several times a year, um, she handled a lot of the marketing and selling uh, and in the west and i did a lot of the the village work and the management of the terrier and doing the production processes
1: super interesting maybe there's some parallels between your project and and, and ours um You know, when Val and I started Op Pop Doc, we were very much like, we want to have, collectively as a group, we want to have fun. We want to travel the world to bringing Lao Textiles onto like the the global platform. Lao Textiles were very like unknown that you set up your project.
2: I think for us, there was definitely a sense of, Trust, responsibility, integrity as a brand. And I know these are all words that are used a lot these days, but back in the day, it was quite, um, we were quite different as a business who came in with these values. People, when they, especially in those areas, when you said business, they immediately associated with um, profit driven and Only thinking for your shareholders and uh, never really trying to squeeze your employees as much as possible for the best profits for yourself so so when we came in and talked about um, how we would try and do this uh, this business model and this was back in when we started very early on talking to the village in 2006 and how we would really stay committed and we would invest in the area we would bring all the infrastructure to the area and we wouldn't just leave with their raw materials and give the employment elsewhere. We said we were going to bring the know-how to the village. We would bring the trainers there.
0: How do you create a mindful, conscientious working model and infrastructure from the ground up? Once Kim, Detchen and the villagers identified the first group of employees, they had to begin training them. The nomads are familiar with deherring, carding, felting, yak, and sheep wool. But how do you begin to learn to weave for the Western market? Early on, Kim and Duchen repurposed old 19th century British looms from India and Nepal and transported them to Ritoma. These looms are easy to operate, they rely on hand labor, and they can handle sturdy and fine fibers. Kim and Dechen also incorporated an intensive training program early on. This involved taking their newly formed team to train in Nepal and Vietnam and bringing master weavers to teach workshops in Ritoma. Going step by step, the atelier began to take shape. The team picked up their skills quickly. Kim and Dechen instilled an ethos of fairness and responsibility, and a working model that included personal development and advancement some of this was familiar to the team and some ideas were completely new let's hear more
2: we built a very um a beautiful atelier where the people could come in to work and really feel respect for the work that they were doing um, plenty of natural light heated um, plumbing which was absolutely unheard of at that point point. and then we tried to explained to people that this was going to be they, they would they would have equal opportunity for training, but once they were trained, then they would enter different um, areas, uh, skill areas. Some would become weavers, others loaders and warpers, and so on and so forth. And depending on their performance and their skill level, then they would have a hierarchy in salary, and it would have nothing to do with whether they were men or women. And this was quite a new concept to them. Um, they were either used to being told everyone was completely equal or being told that um, you weren't you weren't going to be treated fairly at all. So, so in that that way, we really built our company on the principles of a deep sense of responsibility towards the people of the area. And then we also instilled in them that we were also very responsible for. Our customers out there whatever we were providing them had to be things that we ourselves would uh, desire and we ourselves felt had a real value and deserved the prices that we're we're putting them at and and then nowadays of course the environment too we have to really take into consideration um, having proper practices so we're not we live in a small village and we have to be completely responsible for everything we're putting out uh, from the factory, and what we're whatever we're taking into the factory. So, uh, nor less built upon a foundation of a deep sense of responsibility that we're trying to really adhere to.
0: I mean, thinking about my own time and when I traveled through Tibet, like I think of Tibet as um, you know, there's like three really important things. It's the for for every Tibetan. I mean, and of course, I'm saying this as an outsider, but the so there's nature, um, there's the yak, and then there's, you know, living life according to the dhamma, you know, spirituality. So those three things. Can you tell us a little bit about like, the grassland life or nomadic life? Uh, the first thing that kind of struck us when we went
3: there is that there were no trees. The whole ecosystem around animals is places without trees wherever there's grazing animals uh there's a whole ecosystem that kind of developed around them there's all these flowers that bloom in the summer and every flower has a property and the yaks eat the flowers and the grass and then their dung um fertilizes the soil the whole ecosystem is interdependent Um, If you if you don't have the animals and all these undesirable uh, grasses start to grow and choke the others. So it's very interesting to see that in order to maintain this particular ecosystem, you need this balance of the of the plants and the animals. I mean, Buddhism is is a is an integral part of life. And there's a lot of I mean, nomads depend on their animals. They they they, they have to slaughter them or sell them, but they only do it in a way that um, that's, that they get what they need. Um, the ideal is that you only slaughter animals in the fall, you, you dry the meat, and then you don't, you don't do it for the rest of the year. And also, it's, it, they, there's a sense of um, give and take with the animal, whereas they, they collect a hair of each yak that they had to slaughter and put it on their um they put it on their altar and when they say their prayers they make sure they include the animal in their prayers well we had to we're depending on you to live but then there's a certain respect that comes out of there there's no unnecessarily unnecessary cruelty or there's there's a real respect for the animal that's there and i think it's it's got its roots deep in buddhism
1: that's super fascinating that makes me think of um you know, in Laos, we work with um, silt yarn, and that comes from the silkworm worm coming from the cocoon. And um, obviously, the Lao are Buddhist, and, um, you know, part of the process of producing the silt yarn is that the, the moth or the worm has to die inside of the cocoon. Um, but the, the ladies, when they're unreeling the cocoons from the pot, they have a, a kind of Pali song that they sing which is Mm -hmm. about like please forgive me that I'm like essentially killing you Um, but I'm going to weave like the most beautiful textile and in your honor I will weave a butterfly motif and then I will donate this textile to the temple and yeah and so both the weaver and the and the moth get merit.
3: Hmm that's that's a very nice story (laughs) yeah beautiful
1: yeah, I think it's like, what
0: is it, Joe? Like every twice a month, no, none of the weavers come to work?
1: Yeah, it's- on the moon day, the dark moon, the full moon, the quarter moon, the weavers um, put, their, put their shuttles down and um, take time to either go to the temple or do like some offerings to the monks.
2: Yeah, in Tibet, they have where we are, it's quite similar where they'll – Uh, they'll fast on those days and then some of them will take a vow for that day not to uh, speak so that they can then kind of identify or find empathy with animals who who can't voice their opinions and so uh, it's the same where it's the the quarter moon and then the full moon and so on and the new moon and um, they'll have similar and they're always chanting while they're weaving which is great and They'll do all these different prostrations during their break time. And after work, they go around the monastery. And yeah, it's, it's, it's quite similar. And it's a very kind of spiritual place.
1: I mean, I'm very excited to talk about the basketball. We, randomly, we tried to start um, a women's um, pop-top football team. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. It hasn't totally taken off. Everyone loves to do it, but it's just finding the time. So I'm like curious, like, how did you come up with the basketball and how's it going? And
2: local people are obsessed with basketball and it was primarily men. And when we first started out, it felt like we had a lot of time on our hands just because after work for a lot of the younger people they didn't have animals to tend to there's nowhere to really go out to you're in a little village um, and there's no theaters no cinemas no so my husband came up with the idea of having a building a basketball court right next to the atelier and everyone got very excited playing basketball setting up tournaments locally and we started to find that it wasn't, it was really interfering with work a lot. First we set up a team, but then we said, okay, this is uh, not working well, With the workflow. So we're going to stop and no more basketball during working hours and no more basketball team. So that happened. Um, But then finally, this uh, young American guy who was a basketball coach, his name is Bill Johnson. So he kept writing to me from the West saying, oh, I would love to come out and be a basketball coach. And I kept ignoring him until to the point where he was so persistent that we just let him come and see what he could do and and then all of a sudden it started to make sense because uh, he had a very um, kind of a clear vision on how how basketball could contribute to life in general how it can help people think as a team um, rather than the individual and instilling a lot of that into the young men could help them when they come back on the work floors It also really helped build the community, um, allowed all these older folks who couldn't go out to other villages to watch tournaments. They would gather around our court and they would love it. We did a lot of cultural exchanges based on basketball where we had teams from like the US or just small teams, college teams, or just like from Australia come over and they would play with the local Tibetans. For exchange, we even had a wheelchair basketball uh, team Uh, come out and really create awareness around disabilities and really encourage villagers who had disabilities to really be comfortable about going out publicly in their wheelchairs and getting everyone to really sit in these sports wheelchairs and try them out to take away the stigma of um, just being in the wheelchair. So, So we've kind of, we brought it to this level until... COVID happened in 2020, and then our coach couldn't come back. Um, and also, th- all these gatherings weren't allowed anymore, tournaments weren't allowed anymore. So it's come to a halt over the past year due to COVID. But we want to kind of revive it again and maybe make it into something that deals works more with the youth and the younger generation so that we can really uh, bring in these kind of notions of team play and all that. With the younger generation of Tibetan nomads during summer holidays and so on so we're looking forward to continuing all that.
1: That's super fascinating because I mean I'm I totally think that like team sports is something that makes you feel so good and it's such a good tool for like te- team building so it's great to hear that that's that's happened with the coach. You know, something that you touched upon then or something we were going to ask was about like the impact of COVID on on NOLA and on the region where you are. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Of course,
2: in China, we had to go under into lockdown from February. We lost all our sales over the New Year season and the first quarter we were doing extremely badly. And we couldn't actually really open up until... The beginning of the third quarter in June so we had to have six months where we had people come in alternative days and then of course nobody was really shopping and it was it was incredibly challenging the good the silver linings of all of that was that when this started to happen by March we went and we met with the village heads and we talked to them and said that look this is uh, taking a real toll on Uh, on Norla and we're going to have to probably furlough a handful of people so we had at that point we had about 120 employees and we were thinking that we would need to furlough at least 30. We were nervous because until that day we had never missed we had never really we had never fired anyone Um, anyone who had left had left at their own will and we were very good about paying people on time and we had a very good track record so That's how we had built the trust with the local people. And that's how we were able to invest in their training. And we didn't want that to disappear. So we talked to them and we said, we've come up with a plan where we'll furlough 30 people, but everyone that we furlough will give them a food stipend during the months that they are. And then we would also make sure that uh, if there were a couple working with us, at least one could come into work and the other one would have to stay back And it was quite surprising how the village reacted because in the past, sometimes we would like have um, a little bit of some misunderstandings with them. But in this case, they really came together. They said, we completely understand. We're just thankful that you're not pulling out altogether. Um, This is, we will help you explain to the families and even the individual families when we explain to them, they were just like, we're, we're just thankful you're even giving us a stipend. And, and they were very conscious of how many people out there were losing their jobs. And that they were saying, we're in our village. This is not going to make us destitute and do what you can to build up Norla. And we're just happy that our priority is to make sure that you remain in the village and you succeed. So that was that was incredibly reassuring to uh, have that get that kind of reaction. And then, by the time we came to the uh, to mid year, then China started to open up internally. Visitors started coming to the atelier. Sales started picking up, and it was not at all as bad as we had um, we had assumed it would be. And today, we've taken back already taken back everybody. <laughs>
0: Listening to Kim and Dechen, Jo and I are already dreaming of traveling to Amdo. And luckily for us, and any of you who are looking for a mix of high adventure and peaceful moments on the plateau, Dechen and her husband Yidam created just the place. It's called Norden and it's located on the Sanke grasslands, which sits at an altitude of 3,200 meters. Yedam was born into a nomadic family and he wanted to share the qualities of nomadic life. Northern is a collection of 13 tents and cabins that brings together traditional ancestral grassland life with modern creature comforts. Deschen calls it a glamp site, but it sounds more like heaven to us. Let's hear a little bit more.
2: So the northern camp is it's kind of it's 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 a glam site for sure. What they call a glam site. Each cabin or tent um, is surrounded by a lot of little trees and bushes and the river, and you you just hear all the sounds of the birds in the early morning. You see the hares and the marmots and the little ducks in June, and so you get all of uh, all that nature. And then early spring, before the nomads move camp, the animals are still grazing on that area so you'd get a yak kind of butting its head at the window, but nothing to be afraid of. Um, It's all solid and these animals are very harmless. Uh, So there's that whole aspect of uh, experiencing the nature without compromising safety and having the basic comforts in terms of just a very comfortable bed to be in, having a very clean room, um, having food that's very organic, And that really uses the local materials like the rooms are all decorated in a way where a lot of the furniture is collected from things that people are starting to throw out these days as more and more plastic things come into the area nomads are uh, discarding all their traditional furniture so we started to collect those and put them up in the rooms and by doing that people start to see their own traditional things in a new light and Um, There's been a ripple effect and so many other little camps has brought it up because of that. And we, along the way, and they've started using similar concepts, but we're taking all this in a positive way in that it keeps us, uh, as a business, it keeps us on our toes. And ultimately it does, it makes us feel good that at least we're spreading something that's positive in the area and being a positive influence.
1: I mean, that goes back to you guys being innovators and pioneers you're like breaking the rules you're starting new things and you're inspiring people around you to do the same even if it's a similar concept for the success of the NOLA project and all the offshoots the basketball and the camp and your environmental policies and you're really making a change in the community where you work super impressive and You know, for anyone listening, we recommend, highly recommend that you go to the website and look at their beautiful products.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Wow, Rachna, that was incredible. I, I, you know, I feel like I've been temporarily transported to the Tibetan plateau. and I've got a really good picture of, of where they are. But you've been there or you own yak wool, no?
0: Yeah, like I first encountered yak wool, um, like in the early 90s, I was sort of traipsing down or hiking down this valley called Kulu Valley in Northern India, where a lot of Tibetans resettled. And and I was freezing, like literally freezing. I had one change of clothes, and I was wearing all my clothes at the same time, all the time. And I saw this beautiful shawl hanging off out of a shop. And I went to it and it felt like soft and gorgeous. The weave was gorgeous. It, it cost an arm and a leg. The person told me that the yak wool came all the way from Tibet, but there was no way I was leaving without it. I just like literally fell in love with it. And that shawl was like magic. I mean, it kept me warm when I needed to be warm. It kept me, you know, cozy when I just needed a light. layer. It didn't make you invisible though. alter temperature you know no it didn't make me visible (laughs) um but it was you know i i know why kim really loved the fiber and why she was drawn to it and then just the the culture of tibetans of like
1: living so close to nature being so inextricably linked to the yak for me this podcast um or well, this interview really ticks all my boxes, like the indigenous knowledge, the indigenous way of life. Um, two pioneers bringing bringing back or teaching a new a new craft. It's become so successful. They tell the story so beautifully, and they even have a basketball team. Oh. Thank you
0: again for listening. We've added links to Norla, Norla Basketball, and Norden Travel in the description of this episode. Please support Kim, Dechen, and their community in Vitoma if you can. And if you find yourself in Amdo, go stay at Norden Camp. This podcast is a project of Okpap Tok, an artisan weaving community based in Luang Prabang. Check out Okpap website, and after you've experienced nomad living at Norden Camp, Come stay at our Mekong Villa and experience creative Lao artisan living on the banks of the Mekong River. Kup chai Lai Lai!